But it's definitely a different experience, kind of throwback of old days when we could see people face to face. And it's definitely a great privilege for us to come in the presence of the Lord together as a congregation. I want to invite you to go back to Colossians, and I hope this study was really influential in your life. It's not just you come in and say, well, I kind of know that we went with our Bible studies and stuff, but I really want to, to plead with you this morning to pay attention to the scripture. It's not the idea uh, that we preach in. It's not the theology that we preach in. We preach in the scripture and the ideas and the theology that comes from the pages of scripture and from verses. And don't skim through. If you're sitting in your couches right now and just disturbed by stuff, by things, bring yourselves to Scripture. Analyze the Scripture. See. Uh, and I want to encourage you to just look afresh. You heard sermons like that. You heard. But look at afresh at our union with Christ. And how is this union affecting your life. Because as we talked last time, from the verses here in verses 11 up to through 15, we see that the power for your Christian life is in your identity and your union with Christ. And I feel, I do not know, I feel like we it just balances up our years because it's so familiar. Like, yeah, union with Christ, of course, yeah, yeah. But what does that mean? And I hope you really, really dive in and dig in because this is the central part of the gospel. Now, if you're with me in chapter 2, we're going to read verses 16 to 23. Our verses would be 16 to 19 because there's a lot to swallow and for me a lot to digest into um, to guide us through. But verses 16 starts with, verse, with the phrase, therefore. And it's a throwback to what we have studied before of our union with Christ, power to live because we associate with him in everything. In, in his death, in his life, in his resurrection, in everything. Now, therefore, no one is to act as judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or a moon, a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why? As if you were living in the world, do not submit yourself to the decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which have to be sure 
the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things about where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, I call my sermon Freedom in Christ, Freedom in Christ, because only in Christ you have security and freedom to live a life separated from any other ideology. If you, if you ask a person, uh, like last time I asked you a question, if you define yourself, how do you define yourself? If, you, if people ask, who are you? Uh, you? Most likely you would say, I'm a Christian. But the Bible identify you as in Christ. And this word in Christ, this, this phrase in Christ is the most complete identification of who you really are. It's not what you do, it's what you have with him in Christ. And only in Christ, only in Christ, we are find the security and freedom. Now, I heard the story, a missionary in Africa, early days, when there were, you know, no roads. He tried to go to a village that he wanted to evangelize. And he did not know how to get there because it's, it goes through the jungles and the marsh. But he hired... Uh, the local guy who helped him to go through. And so they went to the, uh, on the way and they, they met the marsh. And in the marsh, it's a huge marsh, were like clumps of grass here and there. And he said, how are we going to get through? And he said, we're going to go through the clumps of grass. Just follow me. Just follow me. Follow my footsteps. Don't step anywhere else where I step. And so he kind of went around and zigzagging the things. And finally, after a long time, they were through this. And at the end, the missionary asked, like, why did you didn't go through? Like, there was a more direct road. And he said, you see those clumps of grass, not everyone has solid ground. Many of them are just floaties. And if you stand on those, you will sink. Many have sunk, by the way. And so when Paul is coming to, these, to this text, he says, look, there are few dangers in your Christian life, and they're apparent, they're here. Don't step on them because they have no foundation. The only solid ground is Christ. The only solid ground is Christ. And he warns them about this. Previously, he said that it, it, it is in Christ that we have found wisdom. Like in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us... Who are being saved, it is the power of God. The, the Christ is, is the only life that we have. There's no other life outside of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is again. I, I only find life in Christ. Paul says all the riches are in Christ. Whatever being gained to me in Philippians 3, he said, I count it as, as a loss in order to... to Gain Christ. In this text, as he brings us to this warning, he says, make sure that you stand in Christ alone, because in verse 9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in the bodily whole form, all of the fullness, and you are in him complete. It is Archie important. It is super important to see yourself in Christ as a complete person. In Hebrews 10, 14, the author is, is, is driving this point, and he said, for by one offering, he has perfected, 
He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified right now. Now, why would Paul write this, this, uh, these warnings? And he gives us three warnings, really. He gave us three warnings that, you know, obviously in verse 16, there's one warning. He said, let's let no one judge you. You see that? Let no one judge you. And he's talking about the legalism and the legal practices and performances, religion that drives you to perform things in order to stand secure before God. In verse 18, he he says, well, let no one keep defrauding you by certain experiences, by some mystical things. Don't step there. Don't go there. If the first is saying that you have to obey all the law in the scripture, second, we're saying that you abandon the scripture and go find your experience somewhere else. In verse 20, the third warning, he said, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to the decrees? Why are you trying to live ascetic life in order to present yourself before God more holy or more acceptable? So Paul is using those three, and we're going to cover only two, the legalism and the mysticism. And the point that Paul is driving in these verses is, is basically this. The main point of the passage that godliness is not found in your obedience to rules. Godliness is not found in your super spiritual experiences. Godliness is found only in Christ. Only with your union in Christ. Now look at this. Verse 16, Paul is warning about legalism, legalism. Now, I want to make an, the, uh, just a side note that when Paul is talking about legalistic things, he's not saying that you have to abandon everything and not obey anything because you, now you find in Christ. I, I like how Augustine sets the tone. And so as we go to this and we're going to deal with the Old Testament laws, I want you to have this tone. He said, love God. And do whatever you please. Love God and do whatever you please. Then he adds, for the soul trained in love to God will do, not, do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Catch this? I mean, that's the tone. And so Paul says, if you have Christ, if you're in love with Christ, if you are in Christ, if you've been forgiven in Christ, if you died for self in Christ, if you were buried for your own life, with Christ, if you raise up to the new life in Christ, then, then do whatever you please. But do not let anyone come and tell you that Christ is not enough. And this is what legalism does. Legalism says Christ is good, it is perfect, it is complete, but. And there's always but. There's always but. Yeah, but you have to do something. You could, you could add to the stuff. And, and I tell you, brothers and sisters, legalism is far closer to you and to me than you think. Now, just think about it. You were driving here to church, you know, in your experience, and you see a guy mowing the lawn on Sunday morning. What comes into your mind? Hey, man, poor sinner, right? He should have been in the church and stuff. Or, you know, you, you sit in somebody else's car and you hear, like, Justin Timberlake playing. He's like, man, you need some more sanctification, brother. You know, just, uh, and you kind of bring him to the level of spirituality of what you think is right. Or you've seen someone 
carrying the Bible that is not KJV or not ESV, whatever it is, you, you say, well, man, you know, that is the real Bible and stuff. And we have this tendency to judge, and this is exactly what Paul warns. Legalism judges. It judges. And if you find yourself judging people or to be judged, you automatically in the sphere of legalism. You're judging people. And Paul says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard of these things. Now, let me define legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is really following the rules rather than Christ. The heart of legalism is an attitude of pride. The legalist prides himself for keeping certain standards and judges others to do to those who do not keep those standards. Legalists pick and choose, and he uses the Bible, by the way. That's the danger thing. He uses the Bible, and he chooses the things from the Bible, applies to himself. But you rarely hear a person who judge people by how they love God. Usually, more easier standards picked. Now, Paul is saying, look, there's a distinction between verse 16 and 17. The legalism is paying attention to the shadow. The real religion, pay attention to person. That's the distinction. Verse 17, he said, those are things are just a shadow. You're following the shadow rather than following the real person. And he warns us really, really severely. He said, do not become a spiritual judge based on how they obey Scripture, and especially Old Testament passage. Now, he, he brings two things here. He brings, how do you uh, obey diet and dietary law of Old Testament, and how do you obey the dates and the calendars here? In verse 16, he said, therefore, there's a specification in what things that you should not be judged. Don't let anybody judge you of how you eat. Because Jesus has dealt really in Mark 7, what should we eat? And what is our diet supposed to be? And if you look at Leviticus 11, you will see that you can't eat all sorts of stuff. You can't eat shrimp, you can't eat pork, you can't eat falcon, you can't eat a lot of other stuff. And he, because that was the law for Old Testament. And so some Judaizers came, came in and they said, well, yeah, Christ is good, but, but you need to complete yourself, your sanctification. You need to keep yourself in Christ by eating certain things. And how ridiculous that is when Jesus said, look, Food does not add to you anything. It does not subtract from you anything. In Mark 7, disciples were trying to gain the wisdom of the parable when he said that, you know, it doesn't defile. You can eat whatever you want. And they asked him in chapter 7, verse 17 and 19, he said, well, what does this parable mean? And he said, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. So food really can't help you to become holy before God, and food can't help you or can destroy this holiness. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It has nothing to do with sanctification. Your diet has nothing to do with this. In Acts, 19, in Acts 10, Peter had a hard time with this. Remember, he was really, really hungry on the, on the floor, on, uh, on, the, on the roof, and he went into trance, and he saw the vision, that bunch of junk in his opinion, appeared as a food, and God said, kill and eat it. And Peter said three times, something with Peter in three times, right? He said, no, no, Lord, I will not do that. 
until God said, well, whatever I made clean, consider clean, why are you not considered clean? If you go to Israel today, and you, you have to be careful because that's a real thing for them. Uh, in 2009, me and my wife, we went to Israel, and, and we were warned that there is a kosher law that you cannot you know, mix things together, like, for instance, uh, cheese with, with, with meat. Can't eat cheeseburger in certain places. So I forgot about it. I took the shawarma with a bunch of food in it, and I want to get a coffee. So I went into the coffee shop, and I was screamed at and kicked out immediately because I kind of mixed the food where they were selling milk and cheese, and I brought the meat into the presence. It's not only that you can't eat, you can't even mix them together in the same room. But this is how Judaizers view that you have to obey certain laws of Old Testament. Same thing goes with the drinks. Paul is talking about not just avoidance of water. He's probably talking about a strict following rules of Nazarenes that they could not drink strong drink or wine, right? In other words, some were super strict in their diet, and they think if they don't drink wine and they don't drink any beer, that they, it becomes more holy and acceptable for God. But guess what? Drinks has nothing to do with your salvation certification. Now, I don't tell you to go drink because there's other implementation of the scripture, so well, do not get drunk. But to say that wine would make you somehow unholy, it is outside of scripture. Now, Romans 14, 17, Paul says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 1 and 3, he says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has, has faith that he may eat all things. He may eat rats. I don't like rats, but, you know, but who am I to judge a person? But he who is weak eats of vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the, one, the other who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. I really like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 8. He said, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. And so that's not really a problem for me. I could go to Chinese restaurant, all you can eat, and that's fine. I follow these, like, you know, you could eat pork and stuff and pork chops. And what would be modern-day application for us from, from this food? I mean, we, we're still judging people of how they eat of how much they eat. Uh, you know, the, there, there are other stuff that we could judge and level people's spirituality by how, how much they weigh. Right? I mean, if you look as as obese person, what comes into your mind? It's like, okay, there's she's probably, you know, sinning and, and eating too much and stuff. But remember, the standing in Christ has nothing to do with food and diet. Nothing to do. Some people would come and say that you cannot eat meat today. Like some of the Adventists. And what do you say to them? I don't know, I had a conversation with some of the Adventists recently, and, and he was pointing out that originally in, in the garden, they were not eating meat and stuff, and this is because of sin and, and, and things. And I asked him, like, if, if Jesus didn't want us to eat meat or fish, why didn't he fed, fed 5,000 with 
five lo uh, for two loaves and five fishes? Why did he multiply so much fish if he couldn't? Why did Jesus eat Passover lamb if we cannot eat uh, meat? There's nothing to do with your standing before God, what you eat and, and how much. And Paul says, well, Lycalus would come and, and pick these things from the Old Testament so that enslave you in thinking that you're not complete if you're not doing and following these things. Same thing with the, with the days. Now, again, he says that the, the holidays, and there are many holidays. And, and if you look at Leviticus 23, there's many holidays that they have to observe. And there was kind of celebration of, of God's grace and goodness to them. Uh, but the particular thing that interests of us and probably more uh, relevant to us in, is what Paul is dealing with Sabbath. He said, in respect of festivals or new moon, it doesn't touch us really much. I mean, we could, we could you know, nobody cares about the, the day of first fruits, right? Nobody think about this or Pentecost. But when we come to the Sabbath, that might kind of apply to us. What do you do with Sabbath? Do you obey Sabbath? Should you obey Sabbath? And, and the, the interesting part about Sabbath here is that, is that it's, it's right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It's not just in the middle of somewhere on the outskirt of the law, like dietary laws, you know, some certain date that we have to, they have to kind of obey or not obey. And we could pass those. But the, the, the Sabbath is right in the Ten Commandments. What do you do with those? With Sabbath. It's a fourth commandment and the Ten Commandments. And it's strictly prohibited to do anything on Sabbath. What do you do with that? Now, Paul, when he deals with this in Romans 14, he again, he says, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And who who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord, he does not eat and give thanks to God. When, when Paul is dealing with the, with the legalists, he's saying that legalists will bring a Mosaic law and the Ten Commandments as the standard for your holiness. Standard for your holiness. Now, it's given when God gave Ten Commandments and he talks about Ten Commandments, he, he brings something previously that it was given in Genesis. In Genesis, God, before the law, he said, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he has done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he has done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified because he is rested from all his work, which God has created and made. And in Exodus, when God gave the law, he quotes that. He says, remember the Sabbath, the day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath of the Lord your God. It is uh, in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male and female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested in the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so we might think, okay, look, uh, everything goes from the law of Moses. It's five, uh, the, the ceremonial laws and the priestly laws that, 
you know, obedience to the, to the old the dietary laws. I don't have to keep, but the Ten Commandments I have to keep because, and especially Sabbath in them. Now, there's a distinction between the moral law and application or the binding rules of the law. When God came in, in Jesus, you know what he did to this law, complete law? He fulfilled it. He completed it for you. Something that you were not able to do, he completed it. He made it happen. And therefore, Christ abolished the law because he fulfilled it. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving us the instructions. And he's saying that, you know, your righteousness should be higher than the righteousness of Pharisees. And when you read that with, the, with understanding that, oh, I could do that, Jesus warns us and, and, he, and he fills the law to the brim and says, well, you can't do that. You read five, six, and seven, and you, and, and you can't accomplish any of Jesus' commandments there. It's impossible for human to do that. But praise be to Christ because he said, I fulfilled it. I came not to abolish the law in the beginning, but I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. And that is why when Alec read Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he said, it is for freedom that Christ liberated us. For freedom. Now, Paul calls these things, including the Sabbath, a shadow. A shadow. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse uh, 10, verse 1, we read an explanation. He says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Shadow cannot make you perfect. Obedience to all the rules and regulation can never make you perfect. In Hebrews 8, 4 and 5. The author says, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serves a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountains. The whole law, the whole Old Testament regulation, including priestly system, the whole law, was a shadow of Christ, including Sabbath. Now, it become really relevant to us when you drive Sunday and you wanted to go to Chick-fil-A and they're closed, right? They're closed. Why? Because they obey Sabbath. And the idea is that somehow the Old Testament Sabbath transformed, morphed into Sunday. But you would never find this in Scripture. Uh, it, it is so vital for us to understand that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to uh, go negative against the Westminster uh, Confession, which is really, really good in, in all the parts, except when it talks about Sabbath. The Puritans, they misunderstand the Sabbath. You could be Disqualify from ministries if you play the ball game on Sunday. If you watch the ball game on Sunday. If you wash the dishes. If you go to a restaurant 
on Sunday. You will be disciplined from the church. And Westminster Confession, I would not bore you to read with that. You could do it by yourself. But it basically says that the Old Testament Sabbath turns into Sunday. But look, be honest. I mean, if, we, if, if that is true, then the Bible says clearly that you have to work six days a week. Not five, not four, some of you, but six. And then rest on seven days. But if you would obey that commandment, then Paul says, well... In Galatians chapter 3, curses the one who does not obey all the things that is written in the law. So we kind of set it up ourselves to a failure and a problem. And that becomes a very judgmental thing when we think that we should have done something, but we haven't. Instead, God says, these are merely shadows. You know, I asked my little one yesterday, so well, what is shadow? And, and she said, it's just a black thing on the pavement, black thing. And I asked her, can a shadow bite you? No. Can a shadow say hi to you? No. Can a shadow catch you? No. Can a shadow give you anything? No. It's just a shadow. It's nothing, she said. It's nothing. And it's true. It, it is nothing. It is pointing to something that comes after or before but shadow itself has one purpose, is to point to a real person. That is it. I mean, it would be weird for us, right, to have a fellowship with the shadow. Like we come all here together, instead of meeting with people, we just, we just say hi to shadow and try to follow the shadow. Many of you have pictures in your wallet of your wife or kids and when you're at work, you kind of look at that and have some kind of reminder that you are married and you have lovely kids. But when you come home, you don't fellowship with the, it'll be weird, right? So instead of say, honey, I love you and stuff, you just talk into this picture. Well, these, the whole Testament was fulfilled in Christ because you couldn't. And the whole Testament, Old Testament and the law was pointing to one thing that you cannot complete it. And the only one who completed is coming after. And it's Jesus. And in him you have completeness. The law is good. It is perfect. But that's the problem. We can't accomplish it. And our only hope is not to go back to the law. Because Paul says, who have bewitched you, Christian, that you're going back to the law to make yourself somehow complete or maintaining your holiness by the law. Substance, he says, verse 17, is, belongs to Christ. Those things are merely shadow of what to come, but Christ came and, and really says here in the verse that the body belongs to Christ. Substance is another word for, for body or soma. Body belongs to Christ. Body. And instead of holding out to the shadow, hold on to Christ. Instead of trying to obey these shadow rules, hold on by your faith in Christ. You know, man, you could, you could associate with that. When you come home, your kids just cling to you, right? I hope it's, it's the truth, cling to you. Or when you go out, cling to you that you can't really free yourself. Well, you don't want to, but this is what Paul says, says later on in verse 19, in holding fast to the head. 
holding fast to the head. Because there are some people who come and discourage you and judge you and say, well, you don't obey this rule. And I do. And I'm more spiritual than, uh, than you. The question is, what defines you as Christian? What defines you? How do you define yourself? Do you abstain from certain food? Good. Good for you. You're vegan? Good for you. You eat pork? Good. You celebrate Sabbath? Okay. You don't celebrate Sabbath? It's fine. You worship on Monday? Great. Because Christ brought peace to us. Now, just one side note about Sabbath. There is a verse that Seventh-day Adventist brings all the time. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, it says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And say, well, see, if you're a people of God, you have to keep the Sabbath. It still remains for them. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work, and God did as God did from his. The problem is that they don't read the verse in completeness. Because, yes, it is remaining Sabbath, and it's another word for rest. So what, Paul, what, what author is saying here, that for us, since you enter into Christ, you are at rest. And you are remaining at rest. And it doesn't talk about Sabbath day. He's talking about the rest in Christ, for he who has entered his rest. As God rested on the seventh day from the work, Christ brought salvation, and we enter into him, and we are rested for the rest of our lives. We're resting. It's not just putting burdens on you to do something else. You're resting in Christ. Christ is your substance. He is your real body of substance where you find joy, peace, assurance. I like how MacArthur says, Christ plus nothing equals everything. Let me remind you again that flesh uses legalistic approach. Legalism actually depends on flesh. Flesh is weak to do anything spiritual, but it's very strong to add certain rules to yourself. The idea that spirituality can be attained by putting flesh to work is absurd. It is absurd. True spirituality comes from relationship with Jesus, not from relationship with his shadow. Whenever you see judgmentalists, you could smell legalism. Flesh loves legalism because it gives a chance to boast. But when we are in Christ... You know what you have to boast with? Nothing of your own. We boast in him. In him alone. Godliness is not found in legalism. Godliness is found with our union with Christ through faith. We are not changed from obedience to the external rules. Neither diet or calendar determines the state of your heart. That's one thing. That's a one thief that would come and steal you joy. It's like, okay, uh, you don't do things. Not enough. And Paul would say, well, Christ alone. And if you say, but, he would say, zip it. 
there's nothing, there's no but. Christ, what do you want to add to Christ? Certain rules that you could obey, and if you could obey them, then you're adding to the work of Christ. The second thing that he's talking about, verse 18 and 19, he's talking about the mystical experiences. And if the first, as I said, the first legalistic approach would be going and and using the Bible to, to judge you and to put you down and take you away from Christ, the second would actually do the opposite. The mysticism would take you away from the Bible, away from the revelation, away from the truth in Christ and say, well, you could find the experience somewhere else outside. Here's a definition, probably helpful by MacArthur. Mysticism is the pursuit of deeper or higher religious experience. Deeper or higher religious experience. It is the belief that spiritual reality is gained apart from human intellect and natural senses. It usually approaches the thing by some kind of mystical uh, feelings, internally, intuition, some kind of sensation that cannot be observed by, by this objective data. You can't. And Paul is warning, he said, verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delight and self-abasement. There's a warning against the uh, mysticism because it steals from you the prize. And the idea is here, he said, let no one keep defrauding you, is the idea of stealing the prize from you. And here's how would be probably use this word in secular uh, language, in secular liter- literature. If you have a, uh, if you are running a marathon, let's say you need to run like uh, over 20 miles, and, and, and someone come along you and say, well, actually, you are not fit to run this marathon. You are disqualified because you sipped the water here. You're disqualified because you, had the, uh, you, you have the wrong footing and wrong wear, wearing stuff. You, you don't have what it takes. And all of a sudden, you are discouraged to run. And you are defraud of your prize of going in Christ. And it's always putting the emphasis on something that someone saw. Someone saw. Many religions appear this way. Uh, Mormonism, one of them, Mormonism. Joseph Smith. He had an an epiphany with an angel. And an angel gave him plates, golden plates. Now, angel said, well, don't let anybody look at those plates. No, don't let... Anybody see them, just translate them, hide them, and bring them back. So nobody could investigate. And so he brings his own experience, and he tells people what he supposedly saw, and so he supposedly uh, envisioned, and he brought about the whole religion based on mysticism. Based on mysticism. But mysticism is really, really offers nothing. It offers nothing. I read a story interesting by... Uh, the Kent Hughes provided in, in his uh, commentary about coach Johnny Kerr, who was coaching Chicago, Chicago Bulls in way before I was there, 1966 and 68. One time he was trying to motivate Chicago Bulls to practice. And as he remembers, he said, we had lost seven in a row, and I decided to give a psychological pep talk 
before the game with the Celtics. I told Bob Boozer to go out and pretend he was the best scorer in the basketball. I told Jerry Sloan to pretend he was the best defensive guard. I told Rogers to pretend he could run an offense better than any other guard. I told Eric Mueller to pretend he was the best rebounding, shot-blocking, scoring center in the game. We lost game by 17. I was pacing around the locker room after trying to figure out what to say when Mueller walks up, put his arm around me and said, don't worry about it, coach. Just pretend we won. When you go away from the subjective reality into the subjective experience, this is what you get. Nothing. Nothing solid. Gnostics were offering some kind of visions, some kind of experience that they have with the angels. They, They offered basically another way to God. When Jesus said, I am the door, I am the only door. My word leads and speaks about me. He told the Pharisee, you search scriptures because you think think in them that you have eternal life, but the scriptures testify about me. I am the door. Don't leave the scripture. Don't leave the revelation. Here is the solid ground. Here is the gospel. Don't be defrauded. Don't let any referee comes in and to say, well, okay, you're not spiritual enough. You're not good enough because you didn't have the vision. Guess what? I did. And they come out really, really, you know, deceitfully because it appears in verse 18, it says, delighting in self-abasement in worship of our angels. There's two things come out here. The self-abasement, it is another word for humility. So these people would say, well, I'm, I'm humble. I, I'm not worthy to come to God. I'm not worthy to come into his presence. Uh, he's too holy for me. He's far. I can't even come to Jesus. All I could hope to come to some angel. This is a false humility. In fact, he said, delighting in the, in the self-humility, a delight in the self-abasement, it, it's never good. It's actually pride, right? It's actually pride. You could see that happen in the Catholic Church today. You could see a man well-dressed could crawl through the steps, showing himself as he humble, and he goes and prays at every step, Hail Mary. Why? Well, there's a theology here. The mysticism that somehow he's not worthy to come to Jesus because he's not associated with Jesus. He is associated with Mary. And Mary, mother of God, could actually speak on his behalf to the son because she has the way, you know, as mother has with the son. And the son, in another way, could talk to the father. But his latter, Paul is just destroys it. He said, well, this is just a false humility Leading to worship of angels. Leading to worship of angels. But God is directly, Jesus directly said that you should not worship anyone but the Lord God alone. John was trying to worship an angel in Revelation 19. An angel forbids him. He said, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who holds the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So when Paul assessed the 
mystics and mysticism in this approach. He said, well, they appear to be humble, but the root is really pride. He says, he's, they're just puffed up with a fleshly mind. Thinking to stare on vision, he says, he's seen inflated without cause. Inflated, meaning just like a balloon inflated by his fleshly mind. He also says it does not stand on the word of God, but it stands on vision, right? It stands on vision. And this is, this is often sees in the charismatic movement today. And I just watched a video, 23 minutes in hell. Always impresses me how those people who went to hell remember so much. For 23 minutes, he remembers every detail. When I have a dream, I wake, especially nightmare, I wake up with one terrifying thought. I don't remember details. They always remember details. Like, and I went down, and there was a tube, and there was like all forms of, of, of these creatures, and they were in heat, and there was extensive heat, and he's just like going on for an hour telling about his 23 minutes in hell. Now, I really doubted that he went there. You know why? Because no one comes out from hell. No one goes back. So supposedly that you have a spirituality, have some kind of wisdom from God outside of scripture into the realm of your vision and angels. That should be a warning sign. Like, wait a second. If you tell me something that is not aligned with the scripture, your experiences, keep it, brother. It is inflated by your pride. It's just appearance of humility. It does not stand on the word of God. It stands on certain visions or some experiences. And the most importantly, verse 19, it does not hold fast to the head. It does not hold fast to the, fa- to the head, which is Christ, but, but to the fleshly mind. And this is the biggest problem. Anyone could, could seek the visions, biblical visions, not because as soon as you do that, you remove yourself from Christ by faith. You're not holding on. It says literally that he's not attached to Christ, not holding fast to Christ. How many people desire and crave this supernatural spiritual experience that would supposedly make them more acceptable in God's eyes? There's some kind of supernatural, sensational things. And seeking instead of Christ, the experience, the thrill. And often leads to occultism, often leads to witchcraft. We don't call it, but it is. But Paul says, don't get chopped off the head by these people. But there's refereeing, so you have to have some kind of spiritual experience. Lately, you have been feeling dull, right? So maybe you need to go on an encounter with God on some mountain. And maybe God will have some vision with some lower creatures than God with angels that it would boost your desire to love God. Well, that's just ridiculous. Because we are holding fast to the head which is Christ. Colossians 2.10 said, and in him you have made, been made complete and he's the head of our all rule and authority. Christ wants us to hold fast by our faith to him and him alone. How do we hold on to Christ? By faith. 
not by rules, not by your obedience, not by your faithfulness, by faith. You trust him. You don't let go of Christ. He, he's everything you got. Try to do anything apart from Christ and you screw it. Here's the good news. When we believe in him, he holds us fast. We sing this. He will hold me fast. This is faith. I believe in that. I believe in that. This word hold fast, it's interesting. It's, it's the word for arresting sometimes someone. Arresting that doesn't let go. And as a result, Paul says in verse 19, as a result... Because they don't hold fast to, to the head, because they went away from the revelation of God, because they're inflated by mind, because they're seeking things of their fleshly mind, they're not growing. Because it's from him, verse 19, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grow with the growth which is from God. If you hold on to Christ... By faith, you will grow. We will grow as a body. The unity in the church does not come from trying to please everyone. The unity in the church comes from you personally hold on to Christ. That's it. It's not by the popular opinion. This is what we agree to do. No. The unity is when we individually understanding that we are worth of nothing and get everything in Christ. When everyone is holding fast to the same head, from whom all the source comes in. The unity in the church among believers is a supernatural thing that comes from your union with Christ. It's the byproduct of our union with Christ. We can't produce union. We can't produce growth. You can't produce anything by your achievements. God does because that's what it says, which is from God. Growth comes from God. God supplies all things. The growth of the body and supply of the necessary nourishment through the spirit and the word comes from God alone. You know, do you know how your body grows? I don't. I know that I need to eat food. I need to sleep. I know that I have to kind of, you know, maintain it and wash it. But I do not know how actually my nails grow. Like maybe you know, or my, how my joints are, are, I mean, the doctors might know a little bit more, but really, you know, they can't reproduce it. Well, same thing with the body. When we're attached to the head, that's all we care. God produces the growth. God produces unity. And it is by him the body held together by joints and ligaments. It is Christ who holds us together when we are completely dependent on him. See, we're coming back to the faith again, faith in faith. Godliness is not found in legalism because legalism is performance religion. Godliness does not come from mystical experience because this is experiential religion. Godliness comes through associating with Christ by faith. Christianity is simple can be explained really one in, in one phrase, in Christ. 
Faith unites us with Christ because we've been glued to Christ when he died, when he buried, when he resurrected. And the really obstacle for us to grow is lack of faith. When we really could place ourselves upon him, when he credited all things that he did to us and we accepted by faith. Now when we preach Christ to others, what do we preach? Do we preach rules? Do we preach dietary laws? But somehow when we bring them to Christ, we put the burden of the law upon them and say, now you're somehow incomplete and you need to maintain your salvation. Why don't we keep them there? Because the completeness comes from our faith in Christ who produces all things in us. That is the message of Christianity. The supreme God who sent the supreme Christ who accomplished salvation by his mighty hand would accomplish everything in our lives if we hold fast to him. Paul warns us, beware if anyone comes and judging you, misguiding you, and defrauding you of your prize. Hold fast to Christ. Father, we thank you for this time. I pray that you would grace us to hold fast to Christ in our faith, not to our rules, as to a shadow, not to our spirituality and our accomplishments, not to our experience, outside of the scripture, but a develop a true, genuine relationship with Christ or help us to understand this union with Christ. May you be glorified through that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.